This week, we're talking with YA powerhouse Maggie Stiefvater. Maggie is the New York Times bestselling author of many books for young readers, including the Raven Cycle series and the Shiver series. Her latest book, All the Crooked Saints, comes out October 10. Maggie is joined in the studio by her editor, David Levithan, as well as two extra special guests, her dad and her brother, Andrew. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Daniel Krauss, the Books for Youth editor at Booklist. He'll be talking with us about Booklist's 50 Best YA Books of All Time, a comprehensive list that includes such beloved titles as The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, and, of course, The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater. Welcome, Maggie. We're delighted to have you. Thanks for having me. All the Crooked Saints begins in Colorado in 1962. Why don't you set the scene for our readers by reading the first few pages of the book for us? Sure. Chapter one. You can hear a miracle a long way after dark. Miracles are very like radio waves in this way. Not many people realize that the ordinary radio wave and the extraordinary miracle have much in common. Left to their own devices, radio waves would not be audible for much more than 40 or 50 miles. They travel on perfectly straight paths from their broadcast source, and because the Earth is round, it does not take them long to part ways with the ground and head out to the stars. Wouldn't we all if we had the chance? What a shame that both miracles and radio waves are invisible, because it would be quite a sight. Ribbons of marvel and sound stretching out straight and true from all over the world. But not all radio waves and miracles escape unhurt. Some bounce off the ceiling of the ionosphere, where helpful free electrons oscillate in joyful harmony with them before thrusting them back to Earth at new angles. In this way, a signal can leap, knock its head on the ionosphere, and find itself in Houston or Denver, stronger than ever. And if it is broadcast after sundown, many things in his life work better without the sun's meddlesome attention, and this process is one of them. At night, radio waves and miracles can caper up and down so many times over that in some unpredictable cases, they eventually reach transmitters and states thousands of miles away from their sources. In this way, a small miracle on tiny Bichoraro might be heard all the way in Philadelphia, or vice versa. Is this science? Religion? It is difficult even for scientists and saints to tell the difference between the two. Perhaps it doesn't matter. When you cultivate invisible seeds, you can't expect everyone to agree on the shape of your invisible crops. It is wiser to simply acknowledge that they grow well together. On the night this story begins, both a saint and a scientist were listening to miracles. Oh, thank you so much. It's breathtaking. Thank you. Now, the story is our saints, as we know, We have also pilgrims in the book. How are saints different from pilgrims, and how are they similar? I think the meaning of the book is that they're not very dissimilar, but the magical reasoning is that when the saints, when the pilgrims come to the saints, the saints perform a miracle which makes their inner darkness visible, and then the pilgrims must battle that inner darkness now that it has become external and visible and make it go away. And that's the second miracle. So the big difference, I guess, is that the saints perform that first magical miracle that looks the most magical from the outside because it's the first change. But really, the magic has to have the pilgrim on the other side to finish it off. 
Okay, and tell us a little bit about the Sorias and why they ended up in Colorado in the first place. Well, so I knew that I wanted the story to take place in the desert, but of course the family had to come from somewhere. And because they're Mexican-Americans, I wanted to dig deep into that folklore. And so I started poking around and I found really interesting folklore, which is actually still true today about owls and witches in Mexico and how these witches were very complicated. They could do both good things and bad things, and they could turn into these owls and be creepy in the night. And so when I followed those legends to their source, I found where my Saria family had come from originally as well. So I think it just makes it feel more grounded. The desert with its vast stretch of scrub and its greasewood and rabbit brush really comes alive in this book, almost like a character. Could you tell us about Bicho Raro and how members of the Saria family came to live there? Well, I have to admit, I am not a desert person at all. I grew up in humid Virginia, which is the opposite of a desert. And it was not until I was an adult and actually revisited the desert that I really fell in love with it. And there's actually a passage in the book where one of the characters falls deeply in love with it. And that was very much my experience as well. And I, even though I'm not from the desert. I'm still from a small town, and I really love being a small town. And so I wanted to reflect that all of the family members have a different relationship with Bichoro, which is very small, but they don't necessarily want to desperately leave it, which is a lot of times the narrative about small towns. Instead, they also love it for various ways. And what sort of research then did you do to create this atmosphere? Well, I'm not a very good writer. I'm a much better thief. And so if I want to write about a new place, it seems to me that the best way is to actually visit the place. And so I made many trips out to the desert, but the first one, the one that made me realize that this was where I wanted the book to take place, I was driving across the country in my old 1973 Camaro, which I love. I must love it because it leaves me by the side of the road all the time. And uh, I actually had a breakdown in the middle of the desert. So I coasted in this tiny little mechanics shop. And as I was sitting there, the lady behind the counter started telling me these incredible magical stories about the desert. And I thought, this is exactly the place I want to set my tall tale. It seems you're drawn to the supernatural and to miracles. I know that you attended Catholic school as a child. I did too. I, I found it both alarming and fascinating to read the stories about Joan of Arc and Saint Therese. Found it quite alarming and fascinating to attend Catholic school. Which well, is also true. okay, yes, uh, both are so true. <laughs> but how did your Catholic education help shape your perception of miracles and the spiritual world? Well, the thing that I love about Catholicism and being raised Catholic is that there's not a whole lot of difference between being Catholic and magic. Uh, there's all these folk saints that mix and mingle with all these folk traditions. And so it's such a short leap from religion to magic in this case. And so I really liked touching on that sense of, I don't know, there's that sense of tradition with the Catholic Church. And so it makes things grounded in humanity, I think. You also were homeschooled and you said you were a Navy brat. I wondered what it was like to create teen friendships during this time. It must have been extra challenging. Actually, it's very pertinent to the story. I was homeschooled from sixth grade on, and I was a Navy brat. I moved around all over. And the thing that it taught me, actually, is that home is where your family is. And so I, a lot of people ask me, did you mind moving all those times? And I really didn't because I have a million siblings. I don't. I have two brothers and two sisters. But still, it felt like a million siblings. And it meant like you're moving with a village every place that you went, basically. And so family is so important in this that they barely need any outsiders. They're everything to each other. We might point out that you have several family members here in the audience. Do you indeed have an entourage with me now. Well, since you're also at home, why don't we hear from a couple of your family members? 
I'd love to hear what it was like growing up with Maggie Stiefvater. All right, Dad's up first. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what it was like to raise Maggie. My name is Keith Hummel. I'm Maggie's dad. I'm an ER doctor. I also write. So raising Maggie as a child is very interesting. One story that you might be interested in is when Maggie was, I believe it was about five years old, she decided that she was going to have a newspaper. So she wrote a weekly newspaper, and it had all the local information in it. Some of it was uh, she took a little literary license with, but she would sell this product door to door. And people waited for this, just like they would wait for the latest edition of, you know, of a weekly newspaper to come out. So that's part of raising Maggie. She's, she's written at a very early, it's a very early age. She wrote a significant number of novels. She'd just decide this isn't good enough to do anything with, and just, there it is. I think some of them are probably still around. She takes them out and looks at them from time to time. Were you astounded by her ability to absorb everything <laughs> she ever learned about, whether it's about owls or goats or yes. music? Her capacity for research and assimilation is absolutely incredible. We, we talk every day, basically, and it'll be, uh, did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? I sent you these four things, you know, because I knew you'd be interested in them. Constant research. So she, she reminds me a little bit of an ER doctor. We know a little bit about everything, just like us. Her knowledge is a mile wide and an inch deep. Sometimes it's a lot more than an inch deep, but uh, she knows a little something about absolutely everything. All right, so clearly you had your hands full. <laughs> Let's get a sibling story in here. All right. Hi. Hello. And tell me you're Andrew. I'm Andrew, the brother of Maggie. So when we were kids, we're, you can't tell because this is a podcast, but we're, what, a year and a half apart, probably? Right we were very close growing up, which means we were equal parts friends and also punched each other. And I remember that we used to play make-believe with anything we had on hand. So if we had uh, matchbox cars, they would become characters. We had uh, horses. horse figurines, they would become... Those little felt um, uh, rabbits and beavers and raccoons and things. Yes, yes. And so I would hold this hostage and make Andrew do what I wanted him to do, like clean my room in exchange for playing. And then always I remember that when we would start playing, before we actually started playing, Andrew would always ask the same question. What's the way, Maggie? Right, so the way <laughs> meant like... The setup at the time, that's what I thought. It's the setup, you know, it would be the world that the characters inhabit. They would suddenly be storming a castle, or they would all be in a rock band trying to ascend to fame. And until you had the way, you didn't really have anything to play with. And so I realize now that Andrew was tricking me into writing plots every single day. Mm -hmm. Sort of like whiteboarding. But then there was also <laughs> the, uh, the, the whole thing where we would just be like, you know, doing a road trip as moving often has you doing. And the boredom would overtake her, and she would just turn to me with this very matter-of-fact look on her face and be like, and then you saw, and then name some sort of a creature. And we would then partake of this unfolding story of whatever this creature was up to and what it saw and what it did with the world around it. Yep, he was my first reader as well. He would always read over my shoulder, so I'd write things to entertain him. And even now, he can still quote lines from my terrible drafts way back when. Ah, the infamous character conferences. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys sound like you were a lot of fun growing up. The discerning listener might recognize that line, What's the Way, from the Shiver series. It's how troubled rock star Cole St. Clair and his band would begin every show. 
Now, Maggie, despite what your dad and Andrew have told us, it must not have been all fun and games growing up. To one interview, you described your teen self as, quote, black-hearted and belligerent or funny and warm. How do your novels help teens make sense of their own complicated emotions? I think probably that my novels help teens in the way that any novel does. They always provide kind of unwitting mirrors where you look at a character and you realize you see yourself. But more importantly, when you see a character and you really admire them or you see a place in a book that you've never been before and you really love it, as an adult, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you go there. And so I don't know that I would say that my novels help teens more than others. I certainly hope that they are a bit of a blueprint on how to get to be a hero, but still, I hope that they're just varied enough that someone says, you know what, I'm gonna drive out to the middle of the desert and see what it's like there, and maybe they'll fall in love too. Oh, that's great. You also are asked for life advice quite often. People are, uh, readers are always asking me life advice online, which I think is amazing because I feel like online, I do not look like a very good role model. I don't think, maybe, but readers are always asking, what should I do about going to the prom? Or what should I do to keep from killing myself before college? I mean, they run the gamut from the small to the large, and it feels like such a huge responsibility that in many cases, this book came out of that because people come to these saints here in Colorado and ask them for advice. And one of the big messages is that the saints also need advice as well. So I wanted to talk about what it's like getting good advice from dubious role models. <laughs> In all the crooked saints, there are inscrutable owls, ferocious dogs, and all-consuming dust storms. What significance do some of these things hold? And without spoiling anything, could you tell our listeners what symbols they should be looking out for when they read the novel? You should know, I think, that I love metaphor. I love all kinds of folktales because they tell the truth better than the truth does. So a lot of times when you tell a version of the story, you can't exactly tell what it means. Once you reduce it to a metaphor, though, you know what the story is supposed to mean. And so if you look at this book as everything is a metaphor, everything magical stands for something real, everything real stands for something magical, I think you'll get the most out of it that way. Since David is here with us and Crooked Saints is dedicated to him, I'm happy to say. I am too. I'd love for you to discuss the process you typically go through editing a novel with Maggie. It is always an adventure. You never know quite what you're going to get. Um, we, there is always the initial proposal, and the only thing certain about the initial proposal is that most of it will not end up in the final book. That's true. Um, and so it really is. It, it's just you're you're there for the journey and to see where it ends up and to give signposts when signposts are needed, but mostly it is just seeing how it evolves and, and chiming in every now and then, and then then when Maggie gets to where she wanted to go, then we fine-tune it. With any author you work with, it's always fascinating to see how their mind works and how it ends up on paper, and there's always a direct correlation between how their mind works and what's at, what ends up on paper. And I think it is fascinating to see, especially after working on so many books at this point, to just see what the themes are and what things come up. And I always say one of the challenging things about being an author is that you always are told that being an author is about finding your voice, but the the cruel twist in it is the minute you find your voice, you know what that sounds like and you want to actually do different things. And that for me as an editor is very interesting to see somebody like Maggie who has a very distinctive voice 
who doesn't want to write the same book over and over again, even though people would very happily read the same book over and over again. So then the question becomes, what, what is the new variation or what is the new voice that she is creating going to sound like? And I genuinely don't know that until I have the manuscript. I want to add something, a story yeah. about David, actually. It's only a little bit about uh, David, and it's somewhat okay, sure. about my agent, Laura. So David said that the editorial process was magical and wonderful. It sounded very straightforward when he said it, like you get a draft and then it, we worked together and it was inevitable. And uh, one of the things that I love about working with David is that we've now been working together almost 10 years. And so he has seen a lot of drafts come through. So he knows what they look like in every stage of it. And uh, he's unflappable. I remember that at a very early stage in this draft, my agent said, yeah, I'd really love to see what you're working on now. And I said, oh, it's it's really not ready to be shown to anyone. She said, but you sent it to David. I was like, but David knows what the drafts look like. She goes, no, no, it's I want to see it. I said, it's not good. You're going to be worried. She goes, no, no, just send it to me. It'll be fine. It's going to be great. And I sent it to her. And then I got a very concerned phone call from her. She says, Maggie, are you sure that your this draft is what you really need to be working on? Right? She was completely panicked and completely snowed over by how terrible this draft was. And so I was very grateful in that moment that David always knows it's a work in progress. And so he has never had that moment where he got on the phone and said, are you sure you actually know how to piece together words in a sentence anymore? <laughs> so thank you for that, David. That's a bit of magic right there. You talk about when you get a book on the shelf after you've gotten your author's copy, that really you are creating magic yourself. Not to flatter you too much, Maggie. <laughs> but that's pretty cool to be a magician. I've always I wanted so. to be a magician. Yeah. How would you compare that to being a miracle worker? <laughs> Well, I don't know if I would call myself a miracle worker, but one of the characters that I write about in my series can take things out of his dreams. And I like to think that being an author is pretty much the closest to that that you can get. You make things real. And then when you see readers that come to you and they say that they've done things based on your books, then, oh, you've done it, right? You pulled something out of your head and there it is. That's kind of a miracle. And is it partly the people you meet? You talk about your books being character-driven. Yes, definitely. I think that... Um, in order to write 40 novels, I have to live 40 lifetimes. I, I think if I just write about the same relationships over and over again, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to write the same book again and again. So definitely being on the road a lot, meeting a lot of people, having a lot of hobbies means that I write more varied stories, I think, probably, I hope. And you often introduce characters in Crooked Saints, at least, by telling us what they both want and fear. For example, here was a thing Maricita wanted— to taste vanilla without crying. Here was a thing she feared, that the prettiest thing about her was her exterior. What do you most want and fear? I should say that I ran a Facebook contest for a very early draft of this, and I thought it would be quite straightforward, and I would get just a few entries. And I said, all you have to do is bear your deepest soul. Tell me, I showed them that passage, and I said, now tell me what you most want and what you most fear. And the answers were harrowing. I mean, they were amazing. People really dug deep. If you really boil it down, I feel like that's a really good way to know someone. It's the thing they're striving for, right? The thing that they want and the thing that they're always trying to avoid. So for me, I know the thing that I fear is boredom. And the thing that I want is to be always changing. My goodness. David? For me, the want is to keep, yeah, discovering new things. I mean, both as an editor and as a writer and as a person, I think and just to experience as much as I possibly can in the short amount of time that we have. Fear, I mean, would be the, the 
idea that that won't happen, I, I think, is the negation of that. I think that more than anything. With learning often comes a lot of pain. How much pain are you willing to tolerate? I think a lot of people live very safe lives because they're worried about discomfort. A lot of times the fear of what might happen is worse than what actually does happen. And so they just hesitate right on that safe side. I think I'm safe to say in the presence of my family that I'm more willing to put up with discomfort than many people, which is how I end up staying in houses that have only glass walls and possums. But (laughs) otherwise, yeah, I think discomfort, I'm willing to put up with quite a bit in the sake of a good story. All right. You talked earlier about metaphor. I think the same can be true of magic and myth, that they, quote, make true things more true. What truth are you looking to unearth in your work, in your fiction? I don't know if truth is a better word or if universality is a better word. One of the things that really shocked me is way back when, when I wrote my first book with David Shiver, uh, it was about Uh, people who turned into wolves over the winter. And when I wrote it, I wrote it just for me, and I thought it was a very peculiar novel, very slow and dreamy, full of, you know, quiet kissing and people turning into wolves over the winter. And it meant a very specific thing to me about giving away your identity because of something that I had experienced while I was giving school visits. And yet the book hit, and it landed so strongly with so many different readers everywhere. I got all of these amazing outpourings of letters and they told me what it meant to them. And it was always about losing your identity or giving your identity away or losing a part of yourself. And I realized that when you make something, you distill it to a metaphor, truth, then you get this sort of universal thing where you can write a story, which is very specific to me, but I can get letters from Australia and Thailand and Germany talking about how much it meant to them. And so I think that's really powerful. In terms of magic, which is both fantastical and rule-based, your rules are sometimes almost scientific. How do you determine the rules for the magic in your novels? I think that if you are telling a lie, which is what a novel is, nothing in a novel is true. Even the stuff that's realistic is still not true. It's a novel. If you want people to believe it, you have to change as little of it as possible. So it looks like something which is absolutely realistic. And so that's true of magic, too. The more grounded it is, the more people are going to say, of course, of course, people are going to have coyote heads in the desert. That sounds true because you've changed so little about it along the way. Also, you really want, I think of magic, the rule I try and follow is the lightning strike rule. If a character is hit by a lightning in a television show, you immediately think that guy is toast, even though all of the rules about lightning are extremely complicated. It's because we've learned lightning all our entire lives. Your mother has said, don't stick your head outside during a thunderstorm, you'll be electrocuted. And so you wanna make your magic like that too, so that when your character is struck by metaphorical magical lightning, they don't have to have it all explained to them. Instead they go, ah, he's toast. So that's always my goal. And what are you working on now? I am working That you're allowed to talk about. On that you're allowed to talk about. My driving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing very well with it. Um, yeah, I am working on secret projects that I'm enjoying quite a bit. David knows everything mm-hmm. about them. He may have some of them on his desk right now. Um, yeah, onward and upward, some magical things. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you both so much for talking with us. It's really been a joy. Thanks for having me. Now we'll hear from Booklist's Daniel Krauss, who will walk us through the process of crafting the recent list, the 50 best YA books of all time. 
thank you so much for talking with us today, Daniel. You're welcome. So for starters, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about how you came up with this book list. I know you do address it in the introduction, but I think it would be interesting for them to hear. I think it's general consensus, and that's as much consensus as is possible, which is, of course, not definitive in any way, that The Outsiders was the first of a sort of modern conception of YA. So we really just started there in 1967. And if you're published in 1966, it was too bad for you. <laughs> you're just going to be considered. We had to, you know, it's inevitable when you do this kind of thing. You have to put down certain rules and strictures right from the get-go that are going to cut out certain things. For example, if you, your book is a beloved book by young adults everywhere, but it wasn't published as a young adult, then it wasn't considered. It's a, a mind-bender, really, trying to uh, pull off something like this because you're it's going to, by its very nature, be incredibly imperfect. Uh, there were all sorts of things that I think were surprises to everyone, books that everyone would sort of figure would, would end up on the list that didn't. Um, there were odd swaps of authors that you would imagine would be on the list, but with a different book than you would have expected. And the process was full of that kind of thing, um, which I was glad to see because I don't know that there's a purpose to a list like this if it has all the books that are on all the lists like this. Um, I think for the editors involved with it, it was most painful when something that they personally really loved didn't make the list. But again, that happens so frequently that you became numb to it. Um, so there's certainly individual books that I would have loved to see on the list, but it just, you know, it's like a taking a punch and once you've taken punch number 1000, it stops, <laughs> you don't feel it anymore. So, you know, when you make a list like this, you're, there are going to be books that are just, that everyone knows about and that have to be on the list because they're so brilliant. But just as much, I was looking for these other type of books that you know, people don't know all that well and are going to some of them, many of them get lost to time. I mean, if you look at our list, there's, for the first 25 years of this 50-year history, there's 17 books. And for the second 25 years, there's 33 books. So what that tells you is one thing, is that there's just more books for young adults being published today, true. But it's all, it also means that just inevitably over time, as the years march on, books are going to fall off the radar. They're going to uh, fall out of print. There's only one out-of-print book on our top 50 list, but, you know, we do this list 10 years later, and, and that one's going to become five or 10. And uh, When we do our 100, uh, the, the 100 years of YA, mm -hmm. I won't be here any longer, but uh, a lot of the books on this list right now will be out of print. So it's, it's a losing battle, but, you know, you have to fight it the best you can. We were just trying to, as much as we could, pretend that book sales didn't matter in a way. Like, like forget about what's the most popular books and, and try to look at things on merit. And it's an impossible task. I mean, there's no way to do it. You grow up in a, in a, in a world where the chocolate war exists. You can't divorce yourself from uh, what that means culturally. But we tried to, and it's, I think it's a good exercise for anyone to do, and that's how you end up with um, books like Living Dead Girl by Elizabeth Scott and The Watch That Ends the Night by Alan Wolfe, two books that most people listening to this will never have heard of. Uh, and I think those are the, the books that 
that make me the happiest. They're by no means the only books on here. We have your giant classics on here. But, but seeing those books on there uh, are the ones that are gratifying to me. And I think gratifying to a lot of the editors. I'm also interested in underrepresented voices. Uh, we were happy to see Walter Dean Myers on the list here. Could you talk about what considerations, if any, you gave to really open up the list and make sure that all kids see themselves? Yeah. I mean, it was certainly something we talked about at the beginning. You know, we wanted to make sure the conversations were sort of, you know, we're going to hack away at these hundreds of books to get something, not to 50, but something kind of closer. And then we'll take another look at it to make sure it has various uh, representations in it to make sure we haven't lost our collective minds. But in some sort of magical way, we didn't have to end up uh, changing the list, really. And that was really kind of a surprise, I guess. It was a nice surprise. We sort of got it down to our 50, or very close to 50. And then we kind of looked at it and said, okay, what, what's missing list and it just sort of took care of itself really i think um it seemed relatively well balanced you know given the unbalanced history of uh ya or any type of genre of books so we were aware of it but i think ended up sort of naturally producing a, a good list you certainly did we're delighted, of course, that Maggie Stiefvater, one of our great authors, is on the list. She made it yeah. with a series, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, right. We did allow a series, and that was helpful. That Once we decided to do that, that was one of the few things we did that actually made it easier for us instead of harder. And what is it that drew you to Maggie's work in particular? Well, Maggie's one of those rare people who can write things that are sort of, in a literary way, very deep uh, and complicated and uh, stand up to, uh, you know, a very critical eye. But it's also really got her finger on the pulse of what's popular, you know, and th that's kind of where stars are born, literature, you know, or in any field, really. If you can, if you can do great work and hit that spot, where it's also something that people actually want to read, it's it's surprisingly rare, and so she's really right now one of the best people work, doing that kind of work. I believe it, and it really is a terrific list and thought provoking, which I know is your goal. And we very much appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. You got it. My great thanks again to all of our guests for talking with us, and thank you for joining us. To learn more about Maggie Stiefvater's books or to read about book lists 50 best YA books of all time, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Help us make our podcast even more valuable to you. Please take our survey at scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time.